This morning, we want to continue our studies in the book of Jeremiah. And so, uh, if you'd like to follow along, get to Jeremiah 18, verse 18, on whatever you're reading your Bible on these days. If you're uh, using a cell phone or a tablet of some kind, you might want to turn the volume off so that I don't have to make fun of you when it makes noise. You know, it's always fun is when your phone's going off or, and you don't know it's yours. And you sit there and you think, what guy, what, what, why don't they just turn their phone off, you know? And finally, everybody's looking at you. Somebody's wristwatch. Do you still have wristwatches that have alarms? Do people do that still? Somebody's wristwatch went off a couple of weeks ago. Jeremiah 18, verses 18 through 23 is our text. The topic, Jeremiah becomes so overwhelmed by the news his life is in danger he starts praying against the people of Judah. The title of our message, You Can't Handle the Trial. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to be here today. Uh, last week, Lord, when we were talking about Jeremiah, we saw how that you told him to go down to the potter's house and you were gonna talk to him there. And we drew from that the application that you've told us to go places where you're going to speak with us. And today, this, this is one of those places. Uh, whether it's our regular habit or whether it's something new and different for us, we're here in this place at this time. It's by your invitation, and Lord, we trust that you're gonna speak to us about those things that are most needful for us to hear. I pray that we would wait upon you, that you would reason with our hearts, reveal to us Jesus Christ, him crucified and risen from the dead, standing with arms stretched out to receive us, Lord, in his love. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. The Reverend Wiley Drake, he's the pastor of the First Southern Baptist Church in Buena Park, told Fox News Radio earlier this month that he was practicing imprecatory prayer that would bring about President Obama's death. So you're praying for his death, asked the show's host, Alan Combs, yes. So you're praying for the death of the President of the United States? Yes. A district court judge in Dallas, Texas, ruled it legal for people to pray curses on others as long as there is no threat or harm caused to the cursed person. Mikey Weinstein, the founder of the Military Religious Freedom Foundation, sued former Navy chaplain Gordon Klingenschmidt who had invoked curses upon him. Weinstein claimed the imprecatory prayers caused various threats and damages to his family and property. Should Christians ever invoke curses by praying imprecatory prayers for their enemies? Well, to imprecate is an interesting word. I'm gonna have to say it a bunch this morning because that's our topic. But to imprecate means to invoke evil upon or to curse one's enemies. It's a real type of prayer and there are numerous examples of it in the Bible. King David was king of imprecatory prayer. In the Psalms, he often used phrases like, may their path be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. What a terrifying image that is. He prayed that his enemies would be on a dark and slippery path with the angel of the Lord about to smite them. In another place, my favorite one, oh God, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions. David could really imprecate when he wanted to. 
Now, more to the point, Jeremiah prays an imprecatory prayer in our text. In verses 21 through 23, we'll see him ask God to allow terrible things to happen to the people of Judah, including the women and the children. We're going to talk about if and when we can do this. Along the way, we're going to see something else, something I think will be of far greater personal spiritual value. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, imprecate only if you are in the most severe difficulty. Number two, imprecate only when you are in the most spiritual disposition. Let's take a look first of all in verses 18 through 20 at the severe difficulty that Jeremiah was in. He came to the realization that there was an organized sinister plot against him. In verse 18, then they said, come and let us devise plans against Jeremiah for the law shall not perish from the priest, nor counsel from the wise, nor the word from the prophet. Come and let us attack him with the tongue and let us not give heed to any of his words. It's not me. Don't panic. I'm sure everything is fine. All right, shall we go on? All right, that doesn't bother you, does it? Bothers me, but that's okay. I'm just, I'm just me. Uh, did I read the verse? <laughs> I don't think I did. Verse 18, I feel like I need to be louder now. Then they said, come and let us devise plans against Jeremiah, for the law shall not perish from the priest, nor counsel from the wise, nor the word from the prophet, Come and let us attack him with the tongue and let us not give heed to any of his words. Praise the Lord. <laughs> there must have been a secret meeting in which a strategy was devised to discredit Jeremiah because this was a, an agreed upon strategy. They would attack him, uh, actively attack him with their tongues meaning they would slander him, and they would go out of their way so as to not heed any of his words. So they were listening to what he had to say carefully uh, and doing just the opposite. The law, the wise, and the word from the prophet might correspond to the three main divisions of the Old Testament, the law, the first five books, then the wisdom literature, Psalms and Proverbs, and then the prophets. They were thus claiming to be people of God's word while simultaneously devising evil plans against one of God's servants. The priests and the scribes and the prophets had their message. Jeremiah had his message. They couldn't both be right. You could judge who was right by the content of the message and by the character of the messengers. If what you or someone else is doing and saying is contrary to the revealed word of God, then it's just wrong. No matter how much a person claims to love God, if they ignore his word, they either have never known him or they have left their first love and are backslidden. And you might think that's obvious, but many times uh, people who are walking in sin uh, will... Um, have God as their witness, as it were, and say, this is God's will, or in my case, God is allowing this, or whatever, and, and you, can, you can point them to actual scripture verses and things that they would have believed 10 days ago, 
but now it's like, nah, it's kind of a gray area to me now. And so we have to step back from that because there's gonna be disagreements. And when I think something and you think something, then we need to find out what God has said about it and that actually does settle the situation. Now, a double-barreled campaign of slander and indifference, that's a powerful attack upon a prophet whose words are rich with meaning. I've discovered over the years that not only are there plots against you, evil plots by evil forces, but they always seem to know right where it hurts you the most. The, the, the trial that will really pull the rug out from under you, the one that tempts you the most to get your eyes off of the Lord and wonder about your very walk with the Lord. Uh, I'm telling you, we are in a war against sinister, superior forces except for the presence of God in our lives, except for the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, you know, we, we have that phrase, you've heard it, you know, the, the devil trembles at the weakest saint upon his or her knees, and that, that's true. But so often, his strategies pull you out in a, and you're just on your back looking up, wondering what happened. Get back to your knees and let the Lord deliver you. The plans against Jeremiah were sinister, even more so than slander. Verse 19, give heed to me, O Lord. Listen to the voice of those who contend with me. Shall evil be repaid for good? They've dug a pit for my life. Remember that I stood before you to speak good for them, to turn away your wrath from them. Jeremiah says they have dug a pit for my life, and that means the end game was to eliminate him, to trap him, to capture him, to eliminate him. Imprisonment was one way he could be eliminated, but murder couldn't be ruled out either. And in fact, in verse 23, Jeremiah will say their counsel is to slay me. And so Jeremiah said, hey, I realize now, Lord, these people are pulling out all the stops. Every minute of every day they slander me, and they rub salt in the wound by doing the opposite of what I tell them to do based on your word, but ultimately they're gonna imprison me and try to kill me. Now for his part, Jeremiah had interceded for these wicked people, asking God to withhold his judgment from them. Now with their plot against him revealed, Jeremiah went from intercessory prayer to what theologians call imprecatory prayer. So the question is, when do we go from intercession to imprecating? Well, let's notice a few things. First and foremost, you can only imprecate when that is also God's revealed will in that situation. God had been telling Jeremiah all along, I'm definitely going to allow the Babylonian armies to destroy and burn Jerusalem and carry away its citizens captive. Jeremiah, that's what I'm going to do. He had even told Jeremiah at least once, quit praying for those people. And so God was on record with Jeremiah saying, Babylon is coming. Don't pray for them anymore. And so in his case, he held out for a while, but imprecatory prayer was appropriate because it put him on the same page with God. Now second, Jeremiah was in this trouble because he was serving the Lord in a completely righteous cause. For his part, he was innocent of any wrongdoing. So you can only honestly pray an imprecatory prayer if you are absolutely blameless in the situation and are a servant of the Lord uh, being persecuted for that service. Imprecatory prayer isn't something you have as an ace in the hole kind of prayer to win arguments and disputes. 
It isn't like, well, I'm, I'm done praying for you. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm gonna start calling curses down upon you. And third, the trouble Jeremiah was in, this trial, was severe in that his very life was at stake. They wanted to imprison him with the thought of killing him. Imprecatory prayer, it would seem, is reserved for the most severe trials in which your enemies literally are going to kill you. So if you find yourself innocent of all wrongdoing, being mortally attacked by relentless enemies whom God has told you he is definitely going to deliver to destruction, then by all means, quit interceding for them and start imprecatory prayers. You'll be in sync with the Lord. You might therefore want to think twice about praying against run-of-the-mill non-believers, even if they are the heads of anti-Christian organizations, and you have no biblical support for praying that the President of the United States, whoever it might be, would die. Now, some of you are chuckling because you think, you know, Christians don't really do this. Well, yes, they do. Uh, you know, there's a, at least these two examples. And actually, if you do some research, you'll find that imprecatory prayer is getting more and more popular as Christians just say, we're fed up with the way things are. And so uh, there's, a, there's a movement afoot. By the way, afoot, what an interesting word. Uh, there's a movement uh, that is kind of uh, uh, gaining momentum that God is through with America. Uh, you know, we've passed the point of no return. We're like, you know, sixth century Judah and that God is just, it's too late. God's gonna judge us and stuff. Well, in that kind of an atmosphere, if you start to believe that, you're gonna start imprecating everybody. President Obama, the Congress, uh, Governor Brown, your boss, your neighbor. It's gonna be your favorite kind of prayer. What are you doing? I'm calling curses down on everybody. Why? Well, God's through with America. Why would I want to intercede for anybody when God's through with America? I mean, see, these things that we start to get drawn into, they have real solid implications for things. That's why I prefer Greg Laurie's approach to America. He says, let's try and get the Harvest Crusade in every church in America. Let's see who can get saved. I don't know if God's through with America, but I do know people are still getting saved. I know the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. I know I want to pray an intercessory prayer for my neighbor and for my boss, not an imprecatory prayer. And so let's be careful. Before we move forward in the text, I want us to think about the severity of Jeremiah's trial. Some commentators fault him for going all imprecatory, saying it was uh, his fourth backslide into depression. That Jeremiah was tenderhearted and you know, he could only take so much and he was backsliding into depression. Uh, some people are given to depression. We used to call it melancholy. Remember that? They had a more melancholy personality. Some people, not so much. But all of us, I think, in our walk with the Lord, we have times when we're just, just burdened. Just, and let's just call it depression for now or discouragement. And you just, you, you, you just breathe out. You, did you ever do that? You just, you just breathe out. And you just think, man, you know, what is going on? And you don't always think clearly at that time and, and you, know, you despair of life itself and you wish terrible things upon your enemies. And so you know, some of the commentators say, oh, Jeremiah was just blowing it and you know, he needed to you know, get back into morning devotions or whatever it is and, and you know, get back on track. Others say, hey, imprecatory prayer is, is a type of prayer, especially in the Old Testament. And he was right on track, right in sync with God at that time. Uh, we'll never solve that debate, but what we can say is that this trial 
overwhelmed him. So much so that he saw a real option that God needed to smite his enemies. That was the only possible solution. He was surrounded by sin and idolatry of the most wicked kind. His message was purposely being ignored and in fact, the opposite of what he said to do was being done. He personally was being slandered every day. His life was in constant grave danger and we'll see as we go on that he actually suffered real persecution. If he survived all of that, he was gonna have to suffer along with the rest of the Jews as either a casualty or a captive of an invading pagan army. And as we've seen in the past and we'll see in the future, he eventually was taken to Egypt against his will. Jeremiah was heavily burdened. I don't know how you get up out of bed in the morning if you're Jeremiah, the kinds of things that he faced. Elijah one time was totally bummed out, ran to a cave, crossed his arms in a spiritual sense and says, God, I don't want to have anything to do with this anymore. And he complained, he said, I'm the only one in all of Israel. And the Lord came and he said, well, actually, I have like 7,000 people that you don't know about, so cut it out. Jeremiah, we're fond of saying that he never really had any converts. Almost nobody believed him. God would spare a remnant, of course. The, you know, there were other contemporaries of his who were also prophets, but Jeremiah pretty much alone. And so this is severe. This is a trial of amazingly severe magnitude. Has anyone ever told you, have you ever told anyone, God won't give you more than you can handle? Well, the biblical support for that is usually 1 Corinthians 10, 13. It reads like this. Paul the Apostle is the writer. He says, no temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Now that is indeed a glorious promise that we all need to hold on to. What it is promising is that when you are tempted to sin, you need never yield to the temptation. There is always a way of escape that you may bear the temptation without succumbing to it. Isn't that wonderful? Even though you're up against the devil using the world to tempt your flesh, you need never fall into his traps, but you can escape without sinning. What the verse doesn't say, not really, is that God won't give you more than you can handle in terms of trials. It's about temptation to sin. It's not about the severity of your trials. The truth is, your trials are more than you can handle. If you could handle them, they wouldn't be trials. I don't know if anybody's ever told you that before, but anyone who has genuinely suffered will tell you it was more than they could handle. And you know this intuitively. Many times you've thought when you've heard about a situation in the world or especially someone close to you, some especially traumatic tragedy, One of your thoughts as a human being is, how are they ever going to get through that? How are they ever going to recover from that? How does a person go through something like that? 
it's in that moment that the Christian can count on God to handle the trial for them because his strength is made perfect in our absolute weakness. Not in the fact that we can handle something, but in the fact that we can't handle it. If you don't believe me, you have to believe the Apostle Paul, and this is what he said once in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses eight through 10. It was about a particular trial he was going through. He said, we don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia. We were burdened beyond measure, above strength. We despaired of life. We had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from death and does deliver us, in whom we trust he will deliver us still. And so Paul the Apostle says, you probably heard about our trial. It was beyond measure. There are no human measurements that could tell you how bad that trial was. We, we, there's no comparison, there's nothing to even compare it to. It was so bad that we wanted to die. Have you ever been in a trial like that? Maybe you're in one now. Uh, you don't have to admit it to anyone but the Lord. Where you think about it long and you think, I would rather be dead right now than go through this trial. Paul understood that. He said we had a sentence of death in ourselves. We might as well be dead. We didn't see how we were gonna get through it. He says, but we trusted in God because he brings life out of death. We gave it to God and he got us through it. We got through it in the strength and in the power of Jesus Christ. Once we realized this is beyond anything that we could ever handle on our own. In fact, we have nothing to contribute to getting through this trial. It's spiritually dangerous to think God won't give you more than you can handle. And I would recommend to you that you never say that to anybody again. Because, and maybe it's just me, but when somebody says that to me, they're telling me that I should be spiritually prepared and ready, prayed up, devoted up, you know, churched up, tithed up, whatever it is, to be able to handle what has happened, that I haven't been doing my spiritual calisthenics. If I feel burdened, if I feel overwhelmed, if I feel like I'm being crushed under the trial, then I'm just not the Christian that I thought I was because after all, God's not gonna give you something you can't handle. And the whole time, my spirit, I'm saying to God, I can't handle this, I don't want to handle this, I'd rather be dead. It, if you wanna encourage somebody, just remind them that there's nothing that God can't handle because he brings life out of death. And so the sooner you die to yourself, the sooner you admit that you have no strength in yourself, of yourself, by yourself, that none of your resources can help, then God will bear that burden for you. It's spiritually dangerous to think God won't give you more than you can handle, but it's spiritually glorious when you realize there's nothing he can't handle on your behalf. Now, as we finish out Jeremiah's imprecatory prayer, we find that he was in the most spiritual disposition. Uh, his prayer, verse 21, 
Therefore, deliver up their children to famine and pour out their blood by the force of the sword. Let their wives become widows and bereaved of children. Let their men be put to death, their young men be slain by sword and battle. Let a cry be heard from their houses. When you bring a troop suddenly upon them, they've dug a pit to take me and hidden snares for my feet. Yet, Lord, you know all their counsel, which is against me to slay me. Provide no atonement for their iniquity. Don't blot out their sin from before your sight. Let them be overthrown before you. Deal thus with them in the time of your anger. Now, with everything you know about Jeremiah up to this point in the book, that should shock you a little bit. This is out of character for Jeremiah, who we have labeled the weeping prophet. Jeremiah's been praying for these people after God told him to quit praying for them. And then all of a sudden, it dawns on him that they're trying to kill him and he says, kill the women, kill the children, kill their, uh, you know, uh, and, and beyond that, there's no forgiveness for them. Don't atone for them in any way, but let them perish eternally. After you get over that initial shock, you'll notice a few things. First, you notice that he was talking about the eventual judgment of God, the Babylonian siege and captivity. He wasn't asking God to nuke them right then. He was only asking him not to relent of judging their wickedness. Even though Jeremiah was in immediate personal danger, he was looking past that to God's ultimate judgment. Imprecatory prayer is patient. It waits for the Lord to act according to his plans and purposes. Or we might say of it, it requires we learn to be patient as we wait for God to act. And so though we might, you know, a Christian might possibly be in a situation to utter an imprecatory prayer, it is still a time of patient waiting on the Lord to do eventually what he's promised to do. It doesn't mean you really want your enemy to drop dead of a heart attack right then. Along those lines, when we pray, come Lord Jesus, which is what we're uh, enjoined to do in the last book of the Bible, even so, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. Uh, the spirit and the bride say come. In a sense, it is an imprecatory prayer. I've never really thought about it before, but it is because when we ask the Lord to come, we know that when he comes to resurrect and rapture the church, it's the beginning of something terrible and awful that is coming on planet Earth, and that is the seven-year great tribulation. We will be removed, safe in heaven, but in some correspondence to that event afterwards, the tribulation will begin on the Earth, and I don't have to tell you that it's bad. It's worse than any siege of any city of any time in history. It's every disaster ever in every city, everywhere, all at once on the globe. And then it's worse than that because at one point, demons are let loose on the planet. And they attack people. And people want to die and they try to kill themselves and they can't die. And so when you and I pray, even so come Lord Jesus, there is an uh, imprecatory flavor to it. Uh, we're not really asking God to kill everybody, but we're saying, God, at some point when you come, this is what's going to happen. Now, another thing to notice is that God is long-suffering. There was no doubt the people of Judah deserved the things Jeremiah outlined that were coming and that they deserve them right now. But his ministry would last a total of 40 years. Lots of terrible things would happen to Jeremiah and to many others during those years. Still, God's long-suffering waited for any who might turn to him 
Because after all, an eternity of suffering in hell separated from God is a whole lot worse than any amount of earthly suffering added together. God remains long-suffering today. He's not willing that any should perish, but that they would instead receive eternal life. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not born again. You're not a Christian. I don't know what you think about God or Christians or Christianity or the Bible, but I can tell you that God loves you and that he sent his son to die for you so that you could live forever. And his long-suffering is waiting for you to decide whether or not you will receive eternal life. Let's put all that into perspective. Something awful is happening right now somewhere. In fact, lots of terrible, awful things are happening all over planet Earth. Should God step in and stop it? Well, one day he will. But when he permanently steps in to stop it, when he stops the evil that men are doing to each other by their own free choice, it's going to be too late for multiplied millions of people to repent and receive eternal life. And their die will be cast, they will perish and spend an eternity in hell. God's long-suffering waits, and in the meantime, he gets blamed for every evil, awful thing that happens on the planet. You see, people, they always want God to stop or not allow things that they would stop and not allow. And, and I would even agree with them. They say, hey, here's a situation, it's awful, it's terrible, why, why didn't God stop that? I would look at them and say, okay, do you really want God to start and stop things in your life? Do you want him to have control over your life, tell you what to do and what not to do? Or do you wanna make your own free choices? And they would say, well, of, of course I should have freedom to you know, make choices, but we're talking about evil over here. You know, uh, yeah, I understand it's bad, but God has to respect that free will. He absolutely does, because the same person that wants God to stop this terrible trauma really doesn't wanna have anything to do with God for the rest of their life. They want God to leave them alone. They, they, they wanna be able to sin willfully as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. They wanna have their own morality, do their own thing. So they're saying, God, leave me alone, but you need to take care of this over here because I've decided this is wrong. And if you're powerful, you should do something about it. And the whole time, you and I know God's long-suffering waits for that person who's accusing God of being unfair because if he stepped in the way he's going to, they would be lost forever in hell. That's what's going on in our world. Jeremiah's disposition, extremely spiritual. He was walking in sync with the Lord in his will. He wasn't calling for revenge. He wasn't praying out of anger. We tend to be more like the New Testament characters James and John, disciples of Jesus, who before Jesus died and rose from the dead had the inglorious nickname, the Sons of Thunder. In one episode, Jesus sent some messengers ahead to try and get through a portion of Samaria and the Samaritans said, we don't wanna have anything to do with you. You're not coming through our area. And so James and John came to Jesus and they said, hey Lord, 
How about we call fire down out from heaven and we just flame these guys for disobeying you, a la Elijah in the Old Testament? What do you think about that, Lord? And I'm sure they were getting ready, you know? I don't know how you call fire down from heaven, but this is how I would do it. Anyway, <laughs> they, I mean, they, this wasn't, I mean, this was, I don't, I don't see that as out of anger or anything. I just think, you know, they heard this and they said, well, who do these Samaritans think they are? We're the servants of Jesus. Uh, watch this, flame on, and fire's gonna come down from heaven, yeah, you know? They're no better than the prophets of Baal. Elijah smoked their, their uh, you know, the sacrifice after they couldn't do it, and then he slayed them with the sword, 450 prophets of Baal. Let's get it on, Lord. That's the kind of kingdom we're about. And you know what? We find ourselves praying against the president of the United States and against non-Christians because they're doing, that's the spirit we're about. And what did Jesus say? He looked at those guys and he said, you knuckleheads. In the original Greek, he said, you knuckleheads. No, he did. He looked at them and he said, no, we're not gonna do that. That's not the spirit that we're about. That's not the spirit that we're about. We're to pray for our enemies, and that mostly means intercessory prayer, not imprecatory prayer, because God really isn't willing that any should perish. And so we shouldn't be wanting them to perish before the time. Hey, the Lord's gonna come. You believe that. You know that. His coming is imminent for the church. And there are gonna be people, they're your enemies now. Some of them maybe even mortal enemies. If they had the power, they'd kill you. They're gonna be lost if they don't know Christ. God's gonna take care of all of that in the end. We don't, have to, we don't have to feel like we're winning these personal battles right now. If you're having trouble at work or in your neighborhood or in school or play, you, you don't have to, you know, victory doesn't mean you come out on top in all of those understandings. Sometimes victory means that you look foolish but you take your stand with the Lord. Do you, think, do you think the Lord looked victorious on the cross when he hung there naked with his back torn open, the crown of thorns, the mock sign that says, here's the king of the Jews? Do you think that that was a victorious moment from the point of view of the world? The audience mocked him. They said, you know, he saved others, but he can't save himself. Come down off the cross if you're the son of God. One centurion said, man, this is the son of God because he could tell. So, you know, our idea of victory and God's idea of victory is very different. God's idea of victory is that his strength is made perfect in your utter, absolute weakness, not in the fact that we win every encounter that we're in. It's, it's a little bit hard to swallow sometimes, but that's what it means to be like Christ. We will rarely, if ever, be in a situation like Jeremiah's that calls for imprecatory prayer. Keep interceding for people. We will find ourselves feeling overwhelmed in our trials. You can't handle them, but they are never more than God can handle for you. Cast your care upon him because he cares for you. Let's pray.